0: But right, if you would be be turning to Colossians chapter three, we'll be in verses twelve through fifteen this morning, um, and uh, just to kind of keep us up to where we are, because I think it's really important, uh, because we we've had to break this up just for the sake of time. Um, but remember, this was probably read to them all at once. So we heard last week about putting off, uh, the putting to death, actually the things that are earthly within us. And so the mistake that we could make is in thinking, okay there's just some stuff I need to put to death and not necessarily some things I have to necessarily do because um, that, that would be a mistake on our part because uh, let me remind you of what Christ said uh, when he gave the parable that the person who cast the one demon out swept the place clean, didn't put anything back and it was worse when seven more came along. So it's very important that we recognize that the Christian life is not only about what you don't do. Now you may say, well, duh, No, I think you really need to think about that, and I think you really need to examine your own life and ask yourself the question if maybe you have majored on what you don't do, and use that as the major litmus test for how you're doing, right? Um, And for those of us, if you know anything about the addiction world, we have a, a statement called a dry drunk. Do you know what a dry drunk is? It's somebody who doesn't drink but has not necessarily become a better human being. And so, and so that's a problem, I think, in Christianity. I think we have overemphasized the don'ts. Think about just how we wrestle with the Sabbath, that whole concept of the Lord's Day Sabbath. Uh, most of the time we emphasize what we're not supposed to do, and that makes it a day that is just a burden instead of a day that sets us free to feast and to enjoy and to, as Joe Novenson says, savor. Because calls at the day of savoring. And so um, I want to make sure that we keep this together. It's also important that we remember what has come before. You're not doing any of this, this putting to death or this putting on in order to make God love you more. That's really important that we are really clear about that because if you think that what you do can make you love God make God love you more you do not understand the gospel you just don't and it's going to trip you up and cause you to feel weary and tired and eventually cynical and you're not going to want to do this and so I want us to make sure that we're keeping in in full view what Paul has said. Remember, before he gets to any of the stuff that we're supposed to do, remember at the beginning of chapter 3, he said, look to the right hand of the Father where your life is hidden on high if you have been raised with Him. So before you can even begin to talk about how we live and what we do, you must first be resurrected in Christ. You must know who you are. In fact, that's going to be a heavy emphasis as this passage begins. Paul's going to constantly be trying to remind us, your chosen ones, beloved and holy in Christ, before you are able to do anything at all. And so it's very important for us that we remember that. I think another thing for us, you're like, oh my gosh, all these qualifications. Can we just get to the sermon, please? What's cold outside? You're fine. It's warm in here. Uh, we have to remember that this isn't easy. That, that, that this, this putting to death and this putting on, it is not easy. And notice that it's an active and a perpetual process in terms of the verbs alone. And so Paul recognizes that this isn't easy. So listen to what CFD Moulet says. He says, the process of fully becoming detached from the old and fully belonging to the new remains to be painfully and laboriously completed. And remember that it is not actually completed until Christ returns. That it requires the return of the one who began the good work in us to see it finished. So what what are we doing between the now and the not yet? We are actually growing in our understanding of God's love for us. How deep it is. How wide it is. The truth of the end of Romans chapter 8. That neither depth nor height nor any of those things can separate us from the love of God. That takes some some consideration. That takes Sabbath after Sabbath, weekly coming for us to meditate upon. It takes an eternity to fully appreciate. Do you understand that? If this takes an eternity to fully appreciate, then we should not take it lightly. We should not think it is something that we will hear one time and be able to move on to the bigger issues that it is not something that will just is kind of a one and done deal it is an unfolding process and year after year we have the wonderful opportunity of growing in the depth of that beautiful truth that we are the chosen ones that we are holy and beloved and that should change how we live so that's necessary and one last qualification to remind you of is that Christ, none of this is possible if Christ is not both supreme and sufficient. If he is not supreme and there is someone greater than him, then that means that the work that he has done could be usurped at some point in time. You understand? Like if there is another superman coming, to use terminology that should mean something to some of you, if there's another superman coming, for waiting for a greater superman, And Christ is insufficient and what he has done will not hold. If if what he did was insufficient, meaning that, that God's wrath was not satisfied, that there is more wrath to come for you, that there is a trap door underneath your salvation, that if you do the wrong thing, you're gone, then he's insufficient. That means that there's something else that needed to be done, meaning your works, your deeds. And that's not what that is. So, At the very foundation of this, what we must be rooted in most of all is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Remember, those are the banks of the river that help us think about some of these things. So with all that ado, let us turn to the text and we'll read verses 12 through 15 in Colossians chapter 3. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts thankful now Paul in this section again is reminding them he says put on then now he's either taking us all the way back to the beginning of the chapter where he says if you have been resurrected or he's taking us immediately to where he says Christ is all in all what's the difference there is none. It is still the power of the resurrection at work in us. So he says, if, if you are in Christ and this is now your identity as resurrected one, this is what you should look like. But even before he starts talking about what we should look like, he tells us what we already are. What are we? Chosen one. I know LeBron James has that lovely tattoo that declares himself the chosen one, but I don't think that's how you get in. It'd be easy if that was it, but it isn't, is it? And So it's God's will that chooses us, and here's the good news. For those of you who kind of rankle at this idea of predestination, election, and those kind of things, let me pause. I am not going to satisfy in 30 seconds or two minutes for what I'm about to give you Any of your struggles on that? But just listen and chew on it. And if you have further questions, let's talk later. But here's what I do know. Every time the Bible brings up election, brings up predestination, it is always for a doctrine of inclusion. Meaning more people are included than other people thought. Right? And so in Ephesians, he's talking to the Gentiles. And he's basically telling them, hey, you had no pedigree. You had no law. He had no reason for God to love you, and yet before the foundation of the world, he put his love upon you. Here's what I also know. the God, as it turns out, is way more electing than we would be. And therefore, he is a greater God than we could ever be. And I'm thankful for that. And it's as I sometimes have said, we will get to heaven and go, I can't believe you made it in. And that person's going to turn back to us and say, I can't believe you did either. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar being prom- probably the primary one who gets to say that about a lot of us. And so, so here it's important that we recognize that in that statement, chosen ones, that doesn't mean that you're better than someone else. No, that means that you were so wretched that you needed a savior, that you were so far gone. If God had not placed his electing love upon you, you would know no salvation possible. Amen. And so it also says, as if that weren't near enough, you are holy to him. You are covered in the blood of Jesus. You are viewed through the righteousness of Christ that has been placed upon you, which is what is signified and sealed in baptism, which we'll get to see later in the service. That you are seen through what Christ has finished and done, not anything that you do. And I know that's mind-blowing, that our sin, passed present, and future could be dealt with. That is so mind-blowing to us. We can't hardly get our heads around the beauty of that truth. We recoil at it and immediately say, that can't be possible. No, with man it cannot be. You're right. But with God, all things are possible. So even the sin that you have yet to commit that is just in the incubation stage in the dark place in your heart and mind That, too, has been covered. Now, does that mean that you now have a license to sin? I know there's some of you are thinking, well, holy man, that sounds like cheap grace. No, it was incredibly costly grace to a man named Jesus. And very costly to the father who now gets accused by post-Christians all the time of being this cosmic child abuser. This great patriarch who does nothing but pour out his wrath upon at least his own children. So it's been costly to the very name of God. It's been costly to Christ himself. It's been costly to the church to try to communicate in a fallen world. This is not cheap grace. And it should lead us to worship. It should cause us when we do mess up to run immediately to the throne of grace instead of from it. So that our theology would actually be biblical. Instead of thinking we have to clean ourselves up as if that were even remotely possible. And so he says, you're holy. Think about what Peter says, be holy for God is holy. He just said you are. You're holy. And he says you're beloved. A term of endearment that means that God wants relationship with us. And we've talked about this in here before. So often you hear people say, I don't know what God's will is. Yes, you do. God's will is to be present with you because you are redeemed and called son or daughter to him as your Abba father. That is his will. Now, are there specific things in your life, like job and spouse and all those things that you need direction and wisdom on, and does God care about those things? Yes, he does. But the thing he cares about the absolute most, and that none of the answer to any of those questions will ever violate if it is from God, is that you are redeemed and beloved. Amen? So before we can talk about anything we do, we must always return to the foundation of what has been done. You are chosen ones, holy and beloved. Even if you don't feel like it this morning, if you are in Christ If you are in Christ, it is true regardless of what your heart may try to tell you, regardless of what the devil may try to whisper low, regardless of what the world tells you you are, regardless of what you even sometimes think that you are because you have access to the darkest places of all in you. Know that Christ has reached even there. Know that even the Holy Spirit was welcomed there. Know that the presence of God is even there, as the psalmist says. The dark is not too dark for you. It is as if it were the noonday. That's good news to us. So before we get tangled up in talking about what we're going to do, let us make sure the firm foundation is laid and understood. Right? All right, so now let's move on to what we need to do. He says after that, once you've done that, you are to put on, this is baptismal language. So is talking about um, making sure that you, it is clear who you are. This is one of our main problems, I think, as Christians, is that we don't spend enough time uh, thinking about, how am I living this out? What does this look like to those around me? And what should it look like? We spend a lot of time making sure we have our dogma, our doctrine, our eyes dotted, our T's crossed, our systematic in place, but we don't often pause and go, has that made me more compassionate in my heart? Has that made me kinder? Has that made me meeker? Has that made me love more? Has that made me more forgiving? Because if those things that you believe have not done that, then they are false doctrine. If our if how we practice what we say we believe is off, something is out. doesn't mean that it's not true necessarily, but it doesn't mean how you're applying it is off. So all of us as Christians should be becoming more compassionate. And this doesn't happen. Notice, it's you're called to do it actively and perpetually. You must cultivate compassion. How many of you would be willing uh, to... Admit that you are not naturally compassionate? I'm not. Man, I, we got a church full of y'all. We, next week's sermons on compassion. <laughs> Doing a whole series, a whole year on it, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, I, that's just true, right? How many of you are just, you, you just don't, you're not naturally meek? <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I mean, a whole bunch of us, right? We, these things do not come to us natural, and so notice how we transgress the banks of the river christ in his supremacy has said this it, he gave us his example he says you're being transformed into my image notice all of these things are true of christ this is not we're not being asked to do something that was not true of him we're not being asked to do this in our own strength in fact Think of all that he gives us, all of the means of grace, the Holy Spirit to indwell us. He indwells us. God indwells us. So we're full of the Trinity. Don't go around telling your friends that. You're full of the Trinity. Uh, It'd be true, but it may come off weird. We are full of the Trinity. We have the scriptures themselves. We have the church to build us up and to, to help us. We have each other. We have the world, actually. Notice John 13, Christ said, the world will know who you are by the love that you have for one another. The world will decide what you are in some measure, not in the eternal sense, but certainly between the now and the not yet. And what is she saying of us? What are we saying about each other? How about that one? So far, I've heard nothing but good reports from the women's retreat. I hope it stays that way. I'd like a nice, easy week. The good report is my wife behaved herself and actually did me proud. So that's step one for me, I, my own house, I suppose. But here's the thing. We, we go out in the bank of the river when we say, well, I'm just not naturally compassionate. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what the one who created me and fashioned every part of me, just quoting to you Colossians 1.15, Jesus being the creator and all. I don't care what he says I ought to be. I'm not that. We transgress the sufficiency when we say, you yeah, I just, know, I just don't like those people, and I don't think Jesus can actually give me a heart for those kinds of people. Well, certainly, if that's what you're saying, and that's all the effort that you're putting into it, then yeah, you're exactly right. You, you will have your reward in this life. And so, what should we do here? Like, what should signal us? If Let me just give you a couple of practical possibilities. If there's a group of people that you know that you are just naturally inclined to dislike and you have no compassion for, it might be a good idea for you to do a little bit of reading from their perspective. It might not hurt you to actually serve in a place where those people are. It might not even hurt you to befriend those folks because what you will discover and find is that we all have the same problem and we all need the same exact cure. We're all fallen and we all need Jesus. And so, as Christians, we ought to, when we find darkness in our heart, we ought to be quick to put it to death and then cultivate something in its place. I often don't see that in us. We are way too content to just say, well, just the way it is. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. I know you hung on a cross for me, and I know you rose from the dead, and I know you're making an intercession for me, and I know you're coming back. That's great, but I think that my thing is, my whole situation is bigger than you. Okay. That's a tough place to be because there ain't no other Superman coming. Hebrews speaks to this in chapter 10. He says, if you're going to trample underfoot the blood of Christ and think that that's, that's no big deal, that some other Savior is going to come, you're going to find that that's not going to work out. But don't be of the sons and daughters of perdition. And so we ought to be cultivating these things. One of the places that I think we can cultivate this the most is in prayer. Right? We ought to be praying. When you find that you you are lacking in humility, what should you pray for? If you're lacking in patience, what should you pray for? You know, they always, and I hate this by the way, be careful what you pray for. <laughs> what is that? I, it, That we wouldn't want God to work? Think about what we're saying in that little pithy uh, bumper sticker theology statement. We should be people praying for patience because it's going to reflect the glory of our God. We should be the people who pray for compassionate hearts and cultivate compassionate hearts because it's going to display the love of Jesus. We should be people who say, Lord, help us to be humble. Humble us. So that we would honor and glorify you in all things. Instead of being so self-protective, there's nothing for you to protect. Your life is hidden with Christ on high. All of this, all of this is gift and bonus. I know we don't think it is. I know I don't think it is most days, which is why his mercy has got to be new every single morning, which is why we've got to be constantly reminding one another of the truth of the gospel. So we should be cultivating these exact things. And notice, you can always tell when an author gives more explanation and repeats stuff, it's really important. Notice what he gives the most explanation to. Which part? Forgiveness. Dick Lucas calls this the regulative principle of the Christian life. That if we are unforgiving, you you know straight away something has gone dark in your heart. If you are struggling to forgive someone, if you are struggling to feel forgiven, something has gone radically wrong and you need to be active and perpetual in working that out. Now, all of these things, if you notice, that are evidences of who we are in the heavenly sense, they're all communal. You cannot, you cannot have a compassionate heart in a vacuum, and some of you say, I may have heard you say this, and I don't know which one of you, and I may have said it too, the most compassionate thing I can do is not be around people. <laughs> I'm loving them well from a long way away. Uh, No, that's again. Remember, that is antithetical to the entire story. God comes to be with His people, and He wants His people to be in the places where He would be. Isaiah fifty-eight says it very clear. If you want to know where I am, get out and love your own flesh. Bring them into your house. Clothe the naked. Feed the hungry. Don't forget Matthew 25 either, that the sheep and the goats will be divided very sharply based on how they did Isaiah 58. And I just say, you earn your salvation? No, but your salvation should be evidenced. There is no being a Christian by your proclamation only. That is an impossibility. That is not a category that the Bible understands in any way, shape, or form. And what's fascinating is the church seems to have forgotten that, but the world seems to remember. And I oftentimes think the world is prophetically yelling back at us, and it is God's voice in worldly form. And we are not listening. We're not listening. We're not listening to each other. We hate being challenged, right? We're like, just... Man, it's been a hard week. Just get up there and encourage us. Tell us Jesus loves us. He does. I did. You're chosen, holy, and beloved. I already got that. Well, we had to move on to some other things because, again, the rest of the world needs to know that too. It's ain't just about you. It's not just about me. So here Paul is saying you must display this. And forgiveness is a clear hallmark, and I will tell you. One of the areas that we struggle, think about how easily we break fellowship. Notice what it says here. Let me read it to you again. Because he's essentially admitting, I know this is going to be hard. He says, bearing with one another. Why have I got to bear with you if it's going to be easy? Why would I even have to consider bearing with you if it were going to be a walk in the park? If it were already perfected. No, he's saying, look, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to bear with one another. He says, in bearing with one another, um, you must be forgiving. If anyone has a complaint against another, how many times do we take our complaint, not Matthew 18, directly to the person, but we take it, for it to a few other people to kind of make sure that it, we've got some people behind us. To make sure that we can kind of gather a crowd, as if Frankenstein on the hill needs to be charged with pickaxes and torches lit. Instead of going directly and maybe discovering that it was not, it really wasn't what you thought it was. I can't tell you how many times um, I've misread something. And it's been resolved so beautifully, so quickly, just by going directly to the person. And By the way, with all of these other categories, meekness, humility, compassionate heart, kindness, etc. Right? And so... So here it says, we are to do this in community because, again, remember what Christ is. He is all in all. All those categories that separate us have been compressed and taken away in Christ. The middle wall of separation between each of us has been destroyed in Christ. Why don't we live like it's true? Why don't we cultivate it like it's true? And so it goes on. He says, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So how are we supposed to prosecute our complaints? With extreme prejudice? With jaw set like flint? With anger in our eyes because we can't believe that someone would make such a mistake? It's fascinating to me. I don't know if any of you are watching the World Series. A young man who's Cuban born on the Astros um, made a pretty serious mistake. He kind of Hold his eyes, because you Darvish, who is, um, is he Chinese, Korean, what, Japanese. Thank you, Tommy. Tommy's a Dodgers fan, ladies and gentlemen. Two and two right now. Thank you, Simon, putting on the hat. Uh, <laughs> one time in worship, you can don your cap, and it be meaningful. Um, and so, so he made this mistake, and Yu Darvish was amazing. He said, look, he made a mistake. I get it. He shouldn't have done it. But ever, the moral outrage all around this thing has just been astronomical. So they've suspended him for the first five games, conveniently of next year, uh, not for the World Series. And his pay is going to be dedicated to uh, diversity efforts. And so it's just fascinating to me that you Darvish actually showed probably more of the gospel than the whole rest of the world did in its grand moral outrage. We tend to be of the moral outrage category oftentimes instead of recognizing that we should keep very short accounts, we should love each other well by forgiving one another, that if and when we do get sideways, we should check it out first to make sure it's worth being angry about and then give the person a chance to be forgiven. That is what Christ died for so that we would be, as it says in the text, what? One body. Yet we are so swift to break apart and go away indignant and angry. We are so swift to cultivate that which is um, just a cesspool in our hearts and, and pour into it. Now, does that mean, let me, let me qualify here because this is a big discussion online, of spiritual abuse. So if you've got a leader that is spiritually abusing you, it is not for you to stay under that. It is not for you to, to, to not deal with that you, you do the steps of Matthew 18, right? So if you go and they don't respond, you, you go again with someone else. If they don't respond, then you put it before the church. So don't ever hear me say that forgiveness is something that is cheap. It goes both ways. And that that's, that's important for us to remember, um, that when the other person is unwilling, then you need help. But we should always be pushing toward Forgiving one another and being a community of people who are reconciled to one another because it evidences the fullness of what Christ has done for us, Amen. So he goes on from there and he says, "Let all this be bound together with love is that is that Some of you may not know this we're we're a Presbyterian church uh and so uh does how many times do you think in the history of the world the words Presbyterian and love have come up together like organically? And that needs to change. And we can be a part of that change. Right? That, that, that we should be binding things together with love, not, not prosecution, not, not law, not, not all of these other things. Now, do not hear me saying that that means we just love everybody and there's just no, there's no rules and everybody just be sweet. No, that's not what I'm saying. We're still Presbyterians after all. What I am saying is that love ought to be an, an ethic and an ethos that we are constantly and perpetually cultivating and, and thinking that through as to how is this coming across? How is what we're doing communicating this truth of, of who God is and who Christ is? Yes, God is love according to 1 John 4, but he's also holy. And those things are not mutually exclusive, and they're not in, in tension with one another. It's actually um, it's how, how loving he really is, given that he's holy, that he wants to be with us instead of just destroy us. And so we too should want not to just destroy, not to just strike with a wicked fist, but instead to love well. Amen. So this is; these things ought to be bound together with all these things. He goes on to say, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Remember a few weeks ago we read that quote where gratitude, it really is a measure of the Christian life. If you, if you in any way, shape, or form are failing to, to have gratitude, you're growing in cynicism. And you need to check your heart, you need to ask for help, you need to seek prayer. That is one of God's great gifts to us to say, here is a great canary in the coal mine. See, everybody know what that means? Sometimes I throw out references and I'm like, canary in coal mine just for those who don't know. In the old days, new days, these days, when you would go down into a mine shaft, if there's not enough oxygen, you die. So you want to take a canary with you because if the canary goes first, you want to get out, right? So the canary in the coal mine was kind of the first sign something is wrong. There's not enough oxygen. So for us as Christian, the canary in the coal mine is, if you're, you're failing to forgive, be forgiving, and you're lacking in gratitude. What a great thing that God has given us to kind of look at our hearts and be able to see something so that you know really where you're at. In fact, at the office this week, this is the first time I've done this, and we'll probably do this on a regular basis. I said, all right, guys, cynicism meter. Where are we at, right? 10, you just want to end it all. Zero, you're not paying attention. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> where are we? And, uh, and I think it's important that we, we don't let cynicism take root because I know, I know how dark it can go. I know what I'm hearing. Uh, I, like I said, I spend some time listening to those who have uh, stepped away from the church, stepped away from ministry. I think it's a very important thing to hear their voices. Um, I don't want to be drugged down by them, but I think it's important to kind of hear how did they get there and all of them, every single one of them, the road out was paved with cynicism. And cynicism is a wonderful friend because it's got his little buddy, his name's Sarcasm, and he's kind of funny. But it's not so funny when it goes dark all the way into cynicism. And so it's a great way for us to kind of check on each other and see, are you grateful? And one of the practices that we encourage you to do as families uh, and as individuals, every single Lord's Day Sabbath, is take time to remember how God has been good this week. Because He's good all the time. Um, but oftentimes I think we miss on it. We we just we're not looking for it. And so we don't really recognize all of the places where He is present with us. And so I want to again I want to implore you do that. Regularly do that. Um, either in your small groups or with your family or somewhere. Do it. Uh, and train yourself how to see Because our lenses are so cracked with cynicism, so gunked up. Listen to what Dick Lucas says about this passage. His Colossians must put on or clothe themselves with the moral characteristics just mentioned so that they can act toward others as God in Christ has acted toward them. Our Christianity should result in an outward ethic if it's not something is broken and wrong. So what are you doing to actively and perpetually put on what is heavenly? We talked last week, and I heard from many of you that that was kind of a hard question. It's been a hard question to think about, like what what is earthly within you, and what are you doing to actively and perpetually put it to death? This is a critical co-question with that. So what are you doing to put on what is earthly? What are you doing to cultivate these things? Are these the only five or six or seven Christian virtues? No, but they're pretty high up there. And so if you just started with those, you'd be in pretty good shape. And so... Um, so you need to think about that this Lord's Day Sabbath. What is it that you're doing to actively cultivate these things? Because if you're not, they're not going to come natural. Just because you go to come to church, I'm looking at you, you're not growing more compassionate as the hour grows later. You're just not. I can see it in your eyes. Uh, you will not be compassionate if I make it all the way to 1230 and your kids are hungry and naps and there's like a, an uprising in the children's ministry. Um, it just it doesn't work that way. You reading your Bible, like the the read the Bible in a year type plan that most people die somewhere around about March or February, uh, probably not going to make you more compassionate, like being super gung-ho about lots of religious things, but you need to be in the Word. That's what we're going to see next. We need to be filled with it. We need to be sharing it with each other. And so make sure that what you're doing is actually cultivating these good things, and if they're not, they need to be questioned and thought through. Turn back to the text with me. Let's read verses 16 and 17. Paul says this. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, Paul further encourages the Colossians, one of the ways you will cultivate these things is that the word of Christ must dwell in you, right? We can do that through reading, we can do that through um, listening, we can do that through studying, meditating, singing. Yes, a few weeks ago when I challenged the men particularly to sing, I, this was coming. It was a setup, you should have known. Um, and, and you've done a, a bit better, uh, but But active and perpetual is going to be necessary. And you may say, well, Cameron, it just sounded like you were telling us to do something out of duty. No, actually, Scripture talks about singing all throughout. You know, you're going to be singing a whole bunch in eternity, so you might want to get some practice in uh, between now and then. And so so it's important that our children, the people around us, see that we get this and that, that to sing and participate as one body is communicating something very important. It's not neutral. And so, um, here he's telling us, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. That's very important. And this is the way we will teach and admonish one another. In fact, I've often said this, the church is is only as strong as, as its kind of predominant weakest link. And there are many of you that ought to be teachers by now, and you're not. You're just not. It's not the end of the world. It's not the full bad news, but it is where we are. And so when we are weak in those categories, we, we can't do but so much. We can't. That means that the few of us that are in this position will get burned out over time. And we will not love each other well across laterally. Right? And so, so this is a charge to the entire church, not just to the leadership. So it is critical that we be cultivating discipleship and making disciples. Right? And so... Um, that's one of the reasons that we're so focused upon God's word here. It's one of the reasons that we are so adamant to put resources into your hands to try to help you with this so that it can dwell richly within you. But if you don't use them, there's nothing I can do. Osmosis just doesn't work for the Bible, as it turns out. It works for chemistry, but not for the Bible. All right, listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. It says, the whole revelation of God is the condensed essence of praise. You have only to give it a fitting opportunity by setting it simmering on the fire of a graceful heart and you shall find a sweet cloud of holy incense rising from it acceptable to the most high. Therefore, beloved, be much with your Bibles and let your Bibles be much with you for your own profit, for the profit of others and for the glory of God. Again, if you are not being Bereans and you're just... Doing one of two things, either you're ignoring what I'm saying in toto, which is one option, or you're swallowing it lock stock without checking it for yourself. That's not good. You, you must be a Berean. You must take what we're saying and cultivate it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You must check it to make sure that it's actually biblical, and where it is not, you must raise the question, because it is possible that sometimes that I don't get it all right. It is possible that there are times where we give bad counsel. Selfishly or just accidentally, we're not we're not perfect. Do not treat us as such that's too heavy a burden to bear. But be good Bereans. I love it when people say send me an email that says uh, which this actually has happened for this series. So if Christ is supreme and sufficient, what does that mean about me taking antidepressants? I said, take them so that your head will be clear so you can understand that Christ is supreme and sufficient. Right? There's not a zero sum. It's, and many people have, heard, you know, kind of heard if you, Christ is supreme and sufficient, you should show no weakness. No, it is because of your weakness that Christ is needed to be supreme and sufficient. And the other good things of the world are just common grace to help us. It's not that we, we don't use any of the means of, of common grace. You understand? And so I love it when people kind of want to interact and get engaged with it. If, and even, I'll take frustration even. Wait, wait, wait. I love it when people are like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. If what you're saying is true, then this means that? If what you're saying is true, how do I read Leviticus whatever? Right? My daughter called me the other day asking me questions about Leviticus and Revelation. It was a tough question, as it turned out. She appreciated the answer, though. She said, I always help bring her full circle. So my question to us is, how have you benefited from the word of Christ dwelling richly in and overflowing from other saints? How has that been a blessing to you? And and are you letting them know Uh, Galatians 6 tells us, let teachers know, let people know when they've blessed you with the word that is in them. And if you've benefited from it, how can you become a fount of benefit for others? How can you be a blessing to others through the word that dwells in and overflows richly from you? This doesn't mean that you are some sort of uh, Bible geek that can answer who was the third king after Manasseh? It's awesome if you can, but we don't give away any prizes here. Uh, or that you know like all these facts uh, of the Bible. That's good. Don't get me wrong, but you've got to uh, you've got to be able to apply it. And so it's not a competition. It's actually for the upbuilding and mutual because we need each other. Everybody in this room has gone through or is going through something that needs the balm of Gilead of the scriptures and the spirit and the finished work of Christ. So how are you participating in that? How are you benefiting those around you? Galatians, I'm sorry, Colossians 3, 12 through 17 teaches us these two things, that we are to actively and perpetually, that is such an important term, because some of you aren't big on the active and perpetual, you just kind of want to one and done it, I get it. I get it, but it's not like that between the now and the not yet. It does get easier in some respects. Other respects, it can actually get harder. But we are to actively and perpetually put on what is heavenly as a reflection of our peace and gratitude in Christ. And that we are actively and perpetually to benefit from the word of Christ dwelling in and overflowing from each other. What would our church look like if that's the places in which we were growing? We were growing in forgiveness and love, and compassionate hearts, and meekness, and humility. And the word of Christ dwelt so richly within us that we were just able to speak it to one another and apply it to each other in beautiful, not wooden, or harsh ways. What would that look like? And so this morning, it's been, uh, um, we have the wonderful privilege of seeing someone who's saying, hey, I have put off the things uh, of, of the world, and I am actively and perpetually working to put those things to death, and I want to put on the, the image of Christ, and, and, and her baptism is going to signify and, and, and seal that. It's actually, going to, um, it, it's actually going to communicate to us who are baptized the meaning of our own baptism. So if you've been baptized, you need to take time to improve upon your own baptism as you witness Chloe's. And so she's already become a member, she's already confessed that she is in Christ, and she, she's been a Christian for, for some time, and she's part of RUF, and she serves, um, and, uh, and she's going to serve in our children's ministry, I think, Chloe, I hope I didn't just paint you into some sort of corner. Uh, <laughs> Um, she's going to sing too, I think. She's musically talented, and that's all I'm going to give her credit for. And so um, she wants to use her gifts in the context of the local church. So what a gift that we've heard about the putting on and putting off and all those things, but in baptism, in baptism, it's the word made visible. It's the visible word of the putting on because of who Christ is. And so this will be a declaration of her as a chosen one, holy and beloved And for those of you who are chosen and holy and beloved, be reminded of that as we move into this time of baptism.